You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up, and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and began to mutter, Jesus has gone into the the house of a sinner to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Would you pray with me as I pray for you? Father, I'm thankful uh, that we've carved out a space to be with you this morning. And I just pray that you would hold our attention in this space. You would remove any barrier between us and you and help us to open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears so that we can hear you clearly speak. And I love what we sang this morning, especially in that second song, that our shame cannot survive the presence of your love. And would that be true this morning? God, would you you just heal us of our sin, forgive us of our sin? Would you welcome home those who are far from you today? And for those of us who have been welcomed in, would you remind us who we are? Would you put us back in touch with with your amazing hospitality and love that has called us off the streets and given us a new name and a new home so that we can live like that? Help us to live like that. Do this. I can't do this, Lord. We're, We're asking your spirit to do this. We're asking your word to do its work. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, I want to introduce you to someone. We can put a picture of her on the screen, I think. I want to introduce you to Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, which is a great name, by the way, maybe the best name ever. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Uh, Some of you have heard me share her story before, but it's been several years since I've talked about her on this stage. So if you're unfamiliar with her story, Rosaria was a self... Now, I'm not calling her any names, by the way. So uh, this, this is how she identified herself. She was a self-identified, far-left, radical, lesbian feminist. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in New York with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature, so she's smarter than me. Uh, She was a national leader in the LGBTQ community, and she was very open and honest in her teachings and writings about her dislike and her disdain for the church and for you know, so-called Bible-believing Christians. A lot of that had to do with the way so-called Bible-believing Christians had treated her, because as you can imagine, they weren't necessarily a big fan of her either. Um, at one point in her career, she was writing a book about how 
uh, toxic Christians can be for the world. And uh, for, for her, for, to tease her book, she wrote an article, kind of like an article summarizing her book. And it was picked up and published by the New York Times, and it went viral. Like it was getting passed around from church to church. Christians were passing it around. And she started getting letters from all these Christians and pastors in New York and in the surrounding area. And really, she was starting to get letters from all over. And she had a, a hate mail box that she would uh, put all these letters and print these emails and put them in this hate mail box of Christians, Christians, you know, emailing in and, and calling her all kinds of nasty names and telling her to go to hell and all these kinds of derogatory things that they were saying about her, and she would print these things off. Well, one day, she received a letter from a pastor in the area, and when she saw that it was from a pastor, her knee-jerk reaction was like, I'm just going to drop this in the box. Which you can imagine, by the way, all these letters giving her so much fodder for her book. Like, <laughs> this, these letters are writing her book for her about how mean-spirited Christians can be, Right? So she gets this one letter one day, and she's going to toss it in the box because she's got so many of them, she doesn't even need to read them anymore. But something in her gut, someone prompts her, you got you got Rosaria, you got to stop and read this letter. So she does. She opens the letter, and when she reads it, and she, she tells the story that, to her surprise, this letter was different from all the other letters that she had received from Christians. She talks about how this letter was kind how it was compassionate, how it was warm in its tone, and it was gracious, and it came with a personal invitation. In this letter, this pastor invites Rosaria to come over to his house to have dinner with he and his wife, and she thinks, well, I probably need to do that because it would be a great opportunity for me to like, you know, sit with the enemy and do some amazing research for my book. So she's going to go behind enemy lines and go eat with this pastor. So she accepts the invitation. And she talks, you know, as she, when she reflects on this later, she talks about how she pulls up in their driveway and she sits there for nearly an hour debating whether or not to go in. She talks about how she's afraid, she's scared, she's lonely, she's angry. Because these people she's about to go sit with and, and eat with represent a lot of hurt in her life and represent like everything that she stands against. Eventually, she gets the courage, gets out of her car, walks up to the door, knocks on the door, and she continues to be surprised by what happens next. She says the first thing she remembers is the way she was greeted. She remembers specifically the eye contact and the, com- the compassion in the eyes. She said these people were warm. They were humble. They were genuine. She said they ate a simple meal together around a table And they talked openly about sexuality, about the Bible. She said this pastor and his wife weren't defensive about her questions. She said that they were able, get this, you want to know what the, I don't have time to preach all the sermons I want to preach, all right? She said they were able to disagree with her. They didn't didn't agree with her position on lots of things. But she said at the table over breaking bread, they were able to disagree with her in a way that still made her feel valuable. And didn't make her feel like an enemy or an outcast, which is the definition of tolerance, by the way. And so they they were able to disagree with her in, in a way that she didn't feel like some kind of enemy. But instead, they made her feel at home. This was the beginning of a two year process where Rosaria and this pastor and his wife would enter into each other's homes and engage in conversation over shared shared meals together. They did this for two years. 
Today, as, as I stand here, Rosaria Butterfield, as a follower of Jesus, has written several gospel-centered books and resources. She's married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. They have several children. They are foster parents and basically run a Christian commune out of their house. Now, the question I want to pose to you this morning is how in the world does that happen? I mean, mean, really, this has got my curiosity like full peaked. How how does a self-identified radical lesbian feminist who is an intellectual come to believe the gospel and decide to follow Jesus and submit her life to the authority of his word? How does that happen? Keep in mind, it's not the first time she's heard the gospel. She talks about how she said several instances of Christians shoving signs in her face and screaming at her that she needs to turn or burn and she needs Jesus. So, I mean, the question in my mind is what was so different about her experience with this pastor and his wife? And in her newest book, Rosaria sums up the difference in one word, hospitality. She describes it like this. Here's a quote. I came to follow Jesus because Ken and his wife, Floyd, chose to befriend an outsider. That's the best definition of hospitality. We'll come back to it in a second. They chose to befriend an outsider. They welcomed me in and gave me food and shelter, a safe place to be myself, the good, the bad, and the broken. They entered into my world as I entered theirs. I came to Christ, or he came to me, through radically ordinary hospitality. Love that phrase. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged, the outcast, the lost. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that last line. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. What Rosaria wants us to see in her story, and what I want to focus on with you this morning, is the reality that at the very heart of the gospel, at the very heart of the mission of God, at the very heart of what it means to be his disciples is this ancient practice that we see in the life of Jesus, which the Bible calls hospitality. Now, before I define and unpack what that means, let me just give you the the one point that I really want to drive home in this teaching. Okay, The, The big idea that I want us to wrestle with together this morning is this. If Jesus' mission is that he came to seek and save the lost, if that's his mission, hospitality was his method. It's, and it's not, it's, listen, hospitality was his method. And the big idea that I want you to see is that this is not just something that we see Jesus do, but this is something that he commands his disciples to do. So what that means is that in order for us to be the church God's calling us to be, in order for us to be a people who welcome in the last, the least, and the lost of our city into the kingdom of God, we have to be a people who practice radically ordinary hospitality. Let me reframe it and say it this way. It's impossible to make disciples. That's our whole goal here is to make disciples of Jesus. It's impossible to make disciples of Jesus if we don't practice the hospitality of Jesus. Let me take it one step further. I might argue it's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus 
if you and I don't practice the hospitality of Jesus. Now, to unpack that, are you guys with me? Here's what I want to do. Go to Luke chapter 19. Let's just start by taking a look at this practice in Jesus' life. And I want to reread the first section of Luke 19 together. So here's what Luke says. Quote, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, who we all know was a wee little man. And um, he was a, listen, he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Pay attention to that. Now he wanted to see Jesus. He's a curious little fella. Uh, he wants to see Jesus, but because he's so short, he can't see over the crowd. So he runs up, climbs a sycamore tree. He sees Jesus coming. But then when Jesus sees him, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down here immediately. I want to go to your house today. So Zacchaeus comes down at once, welcomes Jesus gladly. And then get this, all the people, these are, these are the religious leaders, begin to mutter, Jesus, look at what Jesus is doing. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And they're mad because Jesus is fraternizing with the enemy here. Let's let's pause here for a second. Now listen, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this story because you probably sang the cute little children's song. Raise your hand if you know the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree uh, for the Lord he wanted to see. At this point, if you're in the room and you didn't grow up in church, you're like, confused. <laughs> why, would, why would we sing a song about this? And that's probably the appropriate reaction. It, it is a little confusing because it, it makes it sound like the moral of this story is that Jesus loves short people, which is good news for me and Jody Dillon and, and others, right? Like, it's, this is good news. I love you, Jody. I'm sorry. I had to, just had to do it. I saw you standing back there. Um, yeah, if I'm going down, you're going down. We're the same height. Okay. So it, it, it's, it sounds like that's like what the story's all about, but listen, I want to invite us to leave where you're sitting and like travel back in time and see yourself inside this text for a second. When you get inside the historical context, you understand this was not a cute story because Zacchaeus wasn't a cute little guy. He was a ruthless crook. Luke tells you that, if you know the historical context, because Luke says he was a tax collector. In that day and age, tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire, and they made their living off of stealing from their own people. So they would add their own fee on top of Rome's tax. So if Rome was going to tax you 40%, the tax collector would show up at your house and say, for you, sir, it's 70 or 80%. And by the way, if you don't pay, his henchmen and his entourage are going to kill you in front of your family. So can you imagine how despised and hated Zacchaeus was? I love in the um, Jesus Storybook Bible, which are my, you know, my kids read at night, the title of this story is, quote, the man who didn't have any friends, end quote. And yet Jesus wants to sit down with him. Jesus wants to go to brunch with him. Jesus wants to hang out with him. And, and, and guys, the religious leaders are understandably outraged at this. And before we cast stones at them, I, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, to equate this, can you imagine if you saw Jesus sitting down and breaking bread with an American who betrayed his own, company, uh, his own people, his own country, to, to become a terrorist and join ISIS? I mean, how would that make you feel? Scared? 
angry, confused, disoriented. You may even want to kill Jesus for something like that. Uh, Robert Karras writes this book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, something I'll talk about again in a second. But he says, quote, Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. This is not a cute story. This is a disorienting story. And the question and the, the text is inviting us to ask is, how does Jesus explain himself? Why is he doing this? Well, great question. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Maybe we can put it on the screen. Luke 19, 10, or you can look down at your Bible. Focus on this verse, verse 10. Jesus said, you want to know why I'm doing this? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. (laughs) Man, that word lost is huge. I would circle, I would underline that. That word lost is a term for those who are far from God. Those who are strangers and outsiders to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you want to know why I want to have brunch with Zacchaeus? Because Zacchaeus is exactly the kind of person Jesus is looking for. And by the way, let me, let me get ahead of myself a little bit. That's, that's really good news for all of us in the room. You want to know why? Because apart from Jesus, every one of us is lost. And some of you in this room right now, some of you watching online right now are lost. You're a stranger to the love of God. And you find yourself wondering, could God really love me and want to be my friend? Like if he knew all the things I've done and all the things that have been done to me and all the shame that I carry inside my body, like if he knew that about me, could he possibly love me and want to be close to me and want to be friends with me? And what we see in the story of Zacchaeus is that the answer to that question is emphatically yes. So good news for you. Listen, if, if, if that's you this morning, if you feel like you're in that spot, you're exactly the person that Jesus is looking for this morning. You're exactly the person he's looking for. How do we know that? Because Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he's breaking bread with Zacchaeus. That's why he wants to break bread with you and me. Now, let's, 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 let's get back into this context for a second. Because if you're in the original audience, when you hear this phrase, and that's what we're trying to do this morning is hear the word of the Lord. Okay, when you hear this phrase, the Son of Man came, your ears would perk up because Luke's already used this phrase once in his gospel back in chapter 7. And when you hear the phrase used again in chapter 19, now you're, you're looking at chapter 7 and you're looking at chapter 19 of Luke's gospel and you're starting to connect some dots here. So let me tell you what, what Luke said earlier in chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. We can put it on the screen. This is chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says this, For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating, Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Can we just leave that verse on the screen for for a moment? I, I want you guys to look at that. What's already been established, here's what you see in this. What's already been established by the time you get to the story of Zacchaeus is that Jesus was a pretty big fan of eating and drinking with sinners. He's a pretty big fan of it. So 
That means that the story of Zacchaeus is not the exception. It's more of the norm for Jesus. This is the kind of thing he does all the time. In fact, you see so many examples in the Gospels of Jesus eating and drinking with people who are far from God that you see right there on the screen, he's accused by the religious leaders of being a drunkard and a glutton. That's how often he does this. They're looking at this guy and saying, he's a drunk. He's a glutton. Now, we know Jesus was sinless, and those accusations are not true of him. But you still have to admit that Jesus got that reputation somehow. I mean, in Luke's gospel alone, there are over 50 references of Jesus breaking bread with people who are far from God. It's been said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. So don't miss this, okay? Because here's the big takeaway that I want you to see. It's that Luke uses this phrase, the Son of Man came, twice in his gospel, once in chapter 7, once in chapter 19, to make a point about Jesus. And here's the point, to restate what I said earlier in the introduction of this teaching. If seeking and saving the lost is Jesus' mission, hospitality was his method. Luke 19.10, we see this. Maybe we can put this on the screen. It's helpful to see them side by side. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission. That's what Jesus did. Luke chapter 7, verse 34 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's Jesus' method. This is how he did it. Jesus came to seek and save and rescue those who were lost in his kingdom. How did he do it? Well, according to the Gospels, he did it one meal at a time. He did it inviting people to come and be with him at a table. This is Jesus' favorite method of evangelism and preaching the Gospel. That's why we're talking about this in a Preaching the Gospel practicing series. Tim Chester writes this fantastic little book uh, titled A Meal with Jesus. You should all read it. And in it, he says this, quote, This is why eating and drinking were so important to the mission of Jesus. They were a sign of hospitality, love, and the Father's welcome to tax collectors and sinners. I love this sentence. His excess of food and excess of grace are linked. In the ministry of Jesus, meals were enacted grace, community, and mission. Here's what Chester's getting at, okay? Don't don't let this get lost on you. What he's getting at is this kind of eating and drinking with people who are far from God is exactly what the New Testament calls hospitality. And it's something that we're called to practice together with one another like as insiders in the church. Like if you come over to my house, I'm called to practice hospitality with you. But really, by and large, every time this word is used in the New Testament, it's referring to eating and drinking with those who are outside the church, those who are lost, those who Jesus came to seek and save. I really, I really want us, as pastors, we want us as a people to get back to and reclaim this word hospitality. We have some work to do with this word because when we think of hospitality, we tend to think of like Martha Stewart and tea parties, right? Um, or Chip and Joanna Gaines and the picture-perfect kitchen and all the accents and throw pillows in your house are all on point, and that's hospitality. Listen, ain't nothing wrong with that. It's just that's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about hospitality, So what is hospitality? Well, let's try to define it, all right? We can put some stuff on the screen for you. The word hospitality is this compound word, and I'm not trying to sound smart. I think this is helpful to talk through, okay? Philoxenia. Everybody say it with me. Philoxenia. 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 Isn't that fun? 
All right, so it's, it's, it's Greek to me, but it's, it's the word philoxenia. It's this compound word. Philo, we all know. Philadelphia is the city of what? Love. love. Okay, philo means love. Xenia is this Greek word that means stranger, guest, outsider, one who is lost. Put them together, it's basic math. Philoxenia together means to love the stranger, to welcome in the outsider, to give the lost person a home, a place where they can be known, be be loved, and belong. Here's the way some of my favorite writers define hospitality. When people preach your sermon better than you, you just need to quote them, all right? So here's the way several writers define hospitality according to the way of Jesus. Again, Rosaria Butterfield in her book on hospitality, defines it as turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. I love Henry Nouwen's definition. He describes hospitality as creating a space. That's important language, man. Creating a space where change can take place, a space where the stranger can enter in and become a friend instead of an enemy. Or my favorite personal definition of hospitality comes from Simon Carey Holt. He's an Australian chef turned theologian. Uh, He he writes a great book called Eating Heaven, A Spirituality of Food in the Table um, that I read years ago. And here's what Holt says, quote, this is my favorite definition. Hospitality lies at the very heart of Christian mission and is a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. At base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's Spirit to move. Put that on your fridge, man. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your table is a sacred place. I love this because he's saying the same thing Rosaria said. She calls it radically ordinary hospitality. He's saying you don't have to be exceptional to do this. And none of us are, by the way. Who do you think you are if you think you're exceptional? I'd love to talk with you after the service. Uh, you know, and just like, let's do some right-sizing just a little bit. Like, none of us are, is good at this. None of us is worthy to be part of God's kingdom. We all stink at this. And, and, and you don't have to be an expert in the Bible or some master theologian or have some master's degree or, or be some kind of master in apologetics to reach people with the gospel. You just have to be ordinary, and, and provide a place in your home and in your life where those outside the kingdom of God can feel the love and welcome of God. And where they can have a space in their life that you've opened up for them where the Spirit of God can be at work in their lives. Like, listen, this is the way of Jesus. According to Jesus, this is the best way to walk people into the kingdom of God. I mean, again, I, again to, I'm going to have to quote people, okay? So let's go back to Tim Chester because he says it so brilliantly. And he says this, When you combine a passion for Jesus with shared meals with those who are far from Jesus, you create potent gospel opportunities. If you routinely share meals, 
and you happen to have a passion for Jesus, you'll be doing mission. And I love he anticipates our next question. Well, are you saying that meals save people, that we don't have to preach the gospel? No, come on. He says, I'm not saying that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message. But here's what I am saying. Meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. It's been said that the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? I'm telling you something, guys. The gospel pairs really well with a little food and shelter and a little warm welcome and a little eye contact and a little loving greeting and a little bit of grace and a little bit of laying down your own comforts to bring in someone from the outside and give them a place in your life and a place at your table. The gospel pairs really well with that. And that's Jesus' method. And again, it's not just something that, 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 that we see Jesus do, but to move us into the final section here of application, this is something that we're, we're commanded to do. It's not just a beautiful image. It's easy for us to sit here and for me to paint this picture. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I feel warm and fuzzy of like, man, that sounds beautiful. Uh, and I love the idea of this. But like, Jesus calls us to put some hands and feet on this thing. And I'm telling you right now, I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not good at this. I'm not like, I'm telling you, I've got a long way to go here. But we're commanded to do this. A couple of examples. Paul says in Romans 12, 13, practice hospitality. I want you just to look at that on the screen and notice, uh, or, you know, in some places it's called seek to show hospitality. Notice that it's, it's not a, a, a suggestion. It's a command. 1 Peter 4, 9 Show hospitality and do it without grumbling. Look at the next example. God is so serious about hospitality that you see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2 that to be an elder in the church, one of the qualifications is that you have to practice hospitality. Think about that for a second. Jesus wants those who are leading his church to model this for the rest of the flock. Why? Because Jesus understands that essential to his mission, the only way that we're going to see the kingdom of God come and his will be done in northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven is through the hospitality of the church. You need to get a little more excited about what I just said. The only way we're going to see people set free from the bonds of sin and addiction and, and healed from their wounds and evil spirits cast out and the blind and the lame healed and people's eyes being opened. The only way you're going to see the kingdom of God come and his will be done in Northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven is through the hospitality of the church. So Jesus says, okay, the people who are going to lead my church, one of the, one of the qualifications is they need to be a people who practice hospitality. And if they don't, they disqualify themselves. How crazy is that? It's not crazy. It's just, it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, we're called to practice this way, which brings me to my final question. How do we do this? How do we do this? Uh, what does it look like in a crazy, busy, digital, post-Christian world to welcome people in and practice radically ordinary hospitality? Well, that brings us to our practice for the week. Every week in this practicing series, we're, we're, we're talking about an actual practice that we're working out in home, in our homes and in our missional communities. So here's the practice for the week. I want to give us four simple steps. By the way, simple is not the same as easy. These steps are simple. This is going to be hard, though. Okay, Anything worth doing is. This is going to be hard, challenging. 
Four simple steps, and I want to give us a few reminders, and we'll be done. Step number one in this practice, spend some time today, this week, uh, in listening prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind the names and faces of people in your life who are far from God that you can share a meal with. And whatever names and faces he brings to your mind, write them down. It could be friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers. Write down their names. Step number two in this practice, uh, contact one of those persons and invite them to share a meal with you. I'm trying to get as practical as I can here. Step number three, this next part is pretty straightforward. Share a meal with them. <laughs> Share a meal with them. Um, ideally, this is, looks like you opening your home. If that doesn't work, get in a third space with them, a restaurant, a coffee shop, or play Jesus' card and you invite yourself to their house. <laughs> Don't you love that he does that with Zacchaeus? He's like, hey, man, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head, but I'm coming to stay at your house. So, I mean, like, you can always do that, right? Like, hey, I'm, I'm coming to your house next Wednesday, 7.30 p.m., whatever. I mean, whatever. Um, step number four, okay, last step in this, pra- in this practice is if you're in a missional community, and by the way, if you're not, we'd love to help you get into one. But if you're in a missional community, consider ways to work this into your family meal rhythm. We all agree as pastors that your missional community should feel the freedom to take one week each month to invite a lost person to come to your family meal and break, break bread with you. You just don't, don't do a sermon discussion that night. That might be a little too much. But invite them over to come hang out with you. Or check this out. What, what if we gave you the freedom to do this? What if we gave you the freedom to, like, say, one week a month, your missional community doesn't meet? And each person in the group uses that extra margin to invite someone into their home that week who is not following Jesus. Like, get creative and think about ways that you can work this into your MC family rhythm. That's the practice for the week. And it's not just for the week. It's like we're trying to build this into our lives. Now, let me just say a few practical things as we close. I'll be really quick here just to prepare our our hearts and set some expectations for this practice. So a few things to remember as we do this. And I'll be quick here. First, remember that, again, that the call to be hospitable is really just a call to be ordinary. So the goal is to simply take what you're already doing and repurpose it for the kingdom of God. Look, that's the beauty of this practice is it's built into something that you're already doing. You already eat two or three times a day. That's 21-ish times a week when you have a chance to practice hospitality. What if you just took that space and, you know, occasionally repurposed it for, for, for the kingdom of God and you met up with someone for breakfast before work, or you've grabbed lunch with someone, or you have someone over for coffee or for dinner. I mean, if you're doing it right, you don't really have to add anything extra to your already busy schedule. You just unlock your front door and you welcome people into what you're already doing. Okay? Second thing to remember. Remember that hospitality is about service, not performance. Man, this is important. You're there to serve people not perform for them and try to impress them. If this one's not for you, it's for me. I put it on here for me, okay? Um, Don't worry if your house is a mess. Don't worry if you don't know how to cook and you have to order Papa John's. Don't, Don't worry if you're eating on paper plates and not fine china because the goal is not to impress people. It's to serve people. Listen, can I just give you, like, to take some pressure off of you, that means that your house should look and feel lived in. Ever been over to somebody's house that's too clean? 
I had that friend when I was growing up whose grandma had still had like the plastic on her couch. You know what I'm talking about? And like, you feel like you're in a museum and you're just, you just like, feel like you can't touch anything. And, and if, if I go to someone's house that's too clean, I'm anxious as all get out because my kids are a flipping wreck. So like, I'm, I'm like scared that my kids are going to mess something up or break something. I'm scared that I've got like, are my shoes clean? Like when I'm, the point is it's, it's not hospitable. It's not welcoming. I'm not saying you can't tidy up a little bit. I'm just saying that hospitality is based in this fact that like you're there to serve people, not perform for them. So it's okay if your house looks and feels lived in, and it should. All right? Remember, this is, this is about service, not, not performance. Third thing, remember to just be human. Amen. Can we, can, isn't that, doesn't that feel like, can we all just take a deep breath here? Like nobody's asking you to be perfect at this. All we're trying to do in hospitality is be humans that need Jesus with other humans that need Jesus. That's all we're trying to do. So when I say just be human, I mean be appropriately vulnerable and messy with your guests. I'm not saying you need to invite over a guest and on the first you know, dinner you get emotionally naked with them and you just tell them, all your deep, dark secrets and all about all the trauma that you've endured. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, like, let's be, let's have some wisdom here about ourselves. I'm not saying that, but maybe it does look like sharing bits and pieces of your story and your life struggles, your hangups. And then maybe it looks like asking them about their life and just being a good listener. If you model just a little bit of humanity and a little bit of vulnerability, that creates a safe place for other people to be vulnerable and to get in touch with their need for Jesus. If you're performing your way through the lunch or through, through, the, through the meal, like you're not opening the door for the gospel. But if you will be human with other humans that need Jesus, if you'll be vulnerable, that, that comes across like you're not trying to sell Jesus to them. And what it does is it opens the door for the gospel. Lastly, last thing to remember, okay, and we'll, and we'll close. Remember the hospitality Jesus has shown you by seeking you out when you were lost. Romans 15, 7. Let's put this on the screen. We'll close meditating on this verse. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another. How? How how are we to welcome others? As Christ has welcomed you. Christ has welcomed you. This is the main thing for you to remember as you seek to embody this practice. Remember the way you were welcomed. You welcome others the way Jesus has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let that be your primary motivation for welcoming those who are far from God. It's the fact that when you were far from God, Jesus welcomed you in. Every follower of Jesus was at one point an outcast and a stranger to the kingdom of God. And because of the gospel, we are no longer strangers. We're no longer strangers. And when you were wandering astray, lost, dead in your sin, Jesus came on a search and rescue mission for you. And he took you off the streets. And he cleaned you up and gave you a new name and gave you a permanent seat at his father's table. And Paul says, in the same way Jesus has welcomed you when you were far from God, so you welcome those who are far from God. And guys, if the crossing church is not a place where people far from God feel, not just that we say they're welcomed, but where they feel welcomed, that we're not living out of this identity. 
as people who are no longer strangers. We have forgotten something profound of the gospel and who we are in Christ, that we were strangers and outcasts, and now we've been brought in 